This morning we're, we're going to be continuing into the series that we've been going through lately where we've been looking at various times in the Gospels where Jesus is questioned by people because often the answers that Jesus gives when he is questioned they're not the sort of answers that we might expect him to have given and so we can often learn very important and interesting things. And one of the things we've seen is that when people ask Jesus questions, they're usually coming with their own sort of hidden agenda of what they're wanting from Jesus. Um, but Jesus is always able to sort of see through their agenda and is able to turn those questions back on them. So it becomes more of a question of the person who's asking him and he's able to sort of teach them through that. And last time you might remember, we saw James and John both come to Jesus to ask for special places in his kingdom, um, at both his right hand and his left hand. And Jesus responded by challenging them to think about, well, what does it actually mean to be great in the kingdom? As he said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And he reminded them that that was a reflection of Jesus, who Jesus himself is, when he said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, since that incident um, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus then, Jesus then goes on to do things like he heals a blind man in Jericho and then he enters Jerusalem for the last time, triumphantly, and he's hailed as a king as he enters Jerusalem, as the people cry, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And so we might wonder, well, have people finally understood who Jesus really is? But then the next day we see Jesus he comes into the temple and he turns over the tables, drives out all the money traders as he says to them, is, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. But of course after this, the chief priests were told, look for ways to kill Jesus because they're amazed, the crowds were amazed at Jesus' teaching. The leaders, they feel threatened by what Jesus is teaching, by what he's doing. Um, but it says because of the, they were afraid of the crowds, they didn't confront him or do anything about it then. But then we read that they do finally come up and confront Jesus, and that's what we're going to look at today. As we read in Mark chapter 11, verse 27 to 33. They arrived again in Jerusalem and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin, tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? 
But if we say of human origin, well, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. So Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. So we have these leaders come and question Jesus. And notice it must have been a pretty big delegation. We've got chief priests, teachers of the law, elders. This is a large group of people coming to confront Jesus about what he's doing. But they're going all out to try and trap him in some way, to try and get him out of the way, get him to say something controversial that they could use to condemn him, uh, to get him out of the way. So they ask him about his authority. What, by what authority is he doing and teaching these things? And, but rather than give a simple answer to this question, which Jesus could have given a simple answer, he was the son of God, that was where he had his authority, but that's not the answer that he gives. He instead answers with this question of his own. So this morning I want to first look briefly at the substance of this question that he asks them. What, what is John's baptism and why does Jesus bring it up here? And then I want to look at the leader's response to that question that Jesus posed them, what it tells us about them and what it can teach us about what it means to believe in Jesus and to follow Jesus. So firstly, we know that John's baptism was an important part of John's ministry, as we read in Mark chapter 1. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the River Jordan. So we see John's baptising them as this sign of repentance. He's washing them in the water as a sign of this repentance. But notice what else he says to them about this as we read in Luke chapter 3, verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe has been laid to the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So in this passage here where John is teaching them about this baptism of repentance that he's he's performing, he's giving them concrete examples of what this repentance actually looks like. And it looks different for different people based on their lives. But it all involves in them changing something that they're doing. And it might even cost them making this change in their lives. But that's what it means to repent. 
But also more importantly there, notice he talks about how this repentance, that's the sort of thing that God truly seeks from his people. So he says, don't put your trust in being an Israelite. That's not enough. Don't pat yourself on the back and relax and take it easy. God is calling on you. God is calling all of us to repent and bear fruit in our lives. And of course, this is all part of John's ministry, which we know is preparing the way for the Lord. This is how John prepares the way for the Lord, by preaching this message of repentance. Now, we know from John's gospel that the leaders in Jerusalem understood all this. They'd sent messengers to go and ask John about this, and he told them all about it in the same way. But despite learning all this from John, despite hearing this message from John, those leaders in Jerusalem were unmoved. Later, in fact, we read in Luke chapter 7, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptised by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptised by John. So you can see this division opening up between the leaders on the one hand who rejected John's message, they rejected this idea of repentance, um, with the people who did listen to John. They heeded his message, they repented and they bore fruit of that repentance. So there's this divide that opens up on this subject of John and his message and how people responded to it. So just remember those points in the back of our minds um, as we go through the rest of this lesson. But perhaps you can already see why this question that Jesus asked them about what they thought about John and his message, you can sort of see why that was such a, a dynamite question. So the leaders asked Jesus about his authority, where it comes from. But we know that they weren't really genuinely curious about this question. They didn't really care about where Jesus claimed to find his authority because we know they'd already made up their minds. They were already looking to find ways to trap him and kill him. They were just trying to trap him in this question Um, because really what they were trying to do is, well, if Jesus says he's doing this by his own authority, well, we don't have to listen to this Jesus. We can just ignore him. But if Jesus says that he's getting his authority from God, well, he must be a blasphemer. And so from their point of view, by asking him this question, Jesus is sort of trapped. There's nothing Jesus can say that would would get him out of the situation. But as we saw, Jesus reframes the question and turns it back on them in a way that traps them. And he does that by asking them about John's authority, John's baptism. Was it from heaven or was it from human origin? So in this question, he's basically asking them to take sides on this question of John and his ministry, which, as we've seen, is probably a question that they would rather avoid because um, it it was something that had caused division for them. And so Jesus is basically saying, "If if you can answer this question for me, I'll then answer you. And so how did the leaders answer this question? Because, of course, they have a dilemma, as it says. Notice just as their their question of Jesus wasn't really a genuine question, they can't really give him a genuine answer either. 
And so what do they do? They go straight to this sort of political calculation. They sort of scratch their heads and say, well, if we say that John was from God, then he'll ask, well, why didn't we believe in John? Why didn't we listen to him? But if we say, on the other hand, John was from man, well, we could have a riot on our hands because, well, the people believe John's a prophet and so if we contradict them, then they'll be angry with us. So what do we do? We, we can't win either way. And so by this, they sort of show themselves to be more interested in their appearance, how they appear to others, than in really coming to understand the truth. They're more interested in trying to keep the crowd on their side than on seeking God. So we see, obviously, they didn't learn anything from John and his ministry. They learnt nothing about repentance. They learnt nothing about preparing themselves for the Lord. So what's their response? At the end of the day, we don't know. What a cop-out. But, of course, remember who Jesus is talking to here. Chief priests, teachers of the law, the Jewish elders. These are the religious experts he's talking to. And he's asking them about the biggest religious event of their, that's happened in their lifetimes so far. This John preaching in the wilderness. And what's their response? They just don't know. They're useless. You know, they're learned in all the scriptures. They've witnessed John. They've witnessed Jesus firsthand. But all of these things have gotten them nowhere. They can't even respond to Jesus with some interesting questions or thoughtful questions about John and who he was and what he was saying. They're not really interested in in, in that. They're only interested in how their opinions might play with the, with the crowds. And this response sort of reminds me of Jesus' um, response to Nicodemus when Nicodemus is struggling to understand what Jesus is teaching him about the idea of being born again. And Jesus says to him, you are Israel's teacher and you do not understand these things? So here are Israel's religious leaders and they don't understand. They, don't, they can't answer Jesus on this pretty fundamental question that they should have had an answer to. They really are blind guides as Jesus called them. And so because they can't really understand, they just say, we don't know, Jesus, as he says, refuses to answer their question about his authority. But of course, it's not that Jesus is deliberately trying to be obtuse or mysterious or, or, or avoid the question. It's just that because of their answer, it's, there's no point arguing with them. They're just empty suits. If they don't know anything about John and his ministry... How can they raise objections to Jesus and his ministry? They're just useless. They're out of the game. But then Jesus doesn't just let it rest there because in the next chapter Jesus goes on to tell them this parable. He says, A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent, sent still another, 
and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent them him last of all, saying, well, they'll respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him, and they, the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it's marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken a parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So although we've just seen Jesus refused to answer that question about his authority directly, I think in this parable he sort of goes to answer it in a roundabout way because, of course, we know Jesus is this son of the vineyard owner that we read about here who is going to be rejected and killed by the people he's sent to. This, this is a parable that's all about Israel and how Israel had repeatedly rejected the prophets that God would send to them. They rejected those messages from God and their authority. But of course now we see these Jewish leaders are doing exactly the same thing. They're rejecting even God's own son sent to them, rejecting his authority, refusing to listen to him. I think to those with ears to hear it, they can see it's plain what Jesus is saying here in this parable. He is the stone that the builders rejected. He is the stone that God is making the chief cornerstone. And as a result, the vineyard or the kingdom is going to be taken from those who have rejected him and is going to be given to others, those who believe in him. Now, it's not clear exactly what the leaders understood from this parable, but they certainly knew that Jesus was preaching against them. He'd taken a swipe against them and they were offended. But again, they're unchastened by this. They're refusing to listen to what Jesus is trying to teach them. And instead, they're more angry than before and want to arrest him even more. But what do we see again? They're again afraid of the crowd. And so they just go away and leave. Once again, they're just avoiding the issue that's before them, refusing to engage with Jesus. So these exchanges that we've seen here, again, they're about, they come to the question of Jesus and his authority. The leaders ask Jesus where he got his authority. And, and we see Jesus sort of asserts ultimately that he gets his authority because he is the son of God. And, of course, the leaders realise this in some way um, and they don't like it. But Jesus has turned this back on them, rather than being a question about him and his authority, he's turned back on them and the idea of humility and submission. He flips it around and makes it about them, their hearts and their motivations. Because for the leaders both in the case of John and Jesus and the prophets going way back, for them to admit that their authority came from God would require them to humble themselves, to submit themselves before God, admit that they are wrong, admit 
that they need to change and repent and, and um, uh, bear the fruit of repentance that John was talking about. It requires that humility of them. Um, but instead we see their pride just gets in the way and that pride ultimately prevents them from being honest with themselves even about Jesus. And of course it prevents them from being honest with Jesus about their own thoughts and their own hearts. And I think that's what upsets Jesus the most in this situation and why he ultimately refuses to answer their question because really they're just sitting on the fence. They won't openly oppose him. They're too afraid to do that. And yet they won't openly follow him either. They're too afraid to do that or too proud to do that. And so they're just sitting on the fence. But when we sit on the fence, we end up getting nowhere. And this kind of dishonesty with ourselves um, or with others really makes any kind of dialogue um, or any kind of growth or learning impossible. If we're not honest with ourselves, if not honest with each other, if we're not honest with God, we'll never learn or grow. And so when they're challenged by Jesus, the leaders just don't know. But of course, isn't this also so often the response to questions about Jesus today? It's so often the same response. Well, we don't know. Did Jesus ever live? Well, we don't know. It was a long time ago. Did Jesus ever preach the Sermon on the Mount or did other people make it up? Well, we don't know. Was Jesus ever crucified? We don't know. Was Jesus raised again? We don't know. What does Jesus even ask of us today? Oh, we don't know. But I think as as believers we can be just as guilty of this as non-believers. And I think at the end of the day Jesus still answers those those kinds of responses in the same way. Well, I won't tell you either. Because Jesus, the Spirit, can't work with us if we're not willing to participate. We can't expect to come to know Jesus just by sitting on the fence and playing it safe, keeping him at arm's length. We have to be able to engage with him, to wrestle with him, to be honest with him, answer the questions he asks of us honestly. So let's do it. Let's ask ourselves, what does prevent us from fully believing and following Jesus? Like the Jewish leaders, are we motivated by fear? Do we fear what others may think of us if we change our minds? Are we maybe afraid of losing something, maybe losing our position or our status or our livelihood if we follow Jesus fully? Are we afraid of losing the attention or the likes of of influential or popular people? Are we afraid of losing face if we have to change our mind or change something? At the end of the day, whose opinion are we interested in, in, in pleasing? Are we afraid of confronting the truth in our lives? Or perhaps, like the Jewish leaders, will we, ref- will we refuse to humble ourselves? Will we instead trust in our own wisdom? Are, w- are we too proud or too stubborn, too set in our ways to change our minds, change our life, to repent? Or are we, are we just happy to um, uh, uh, go on our, our, on our merry way? Will we, will we be willing to submit 
to God or will we just submit to our own authority? Perhaps like the Jewish leaders, would we rather just trap Jesus in some way, try and find some way to justify ourselves, um, prove that ourselves that we're right, we're okay, it's okay, I don't need to do anything? Will we try and find a way to keep ourselves in charge? Or try and keep Jesus in a place that we feel comfortable with, that doesn't challenge us? Or like the Jewish leaders, are we too narrow-minded, too closed-minded? Are we too happy where we are? Or do we approach Jesus with genuine curiosity, a willingness to learn, an open mind to be taught um, and to change as he wants us to? Are we truly going to be disciples, learning at Jesus' feet, rather than just sitting, watching him from afar? Because when it comes to believing in Jesus, it's more than just about having the right arguments or following the right arguments or saying the right thing that might convince someone about Jesus or even knowing the right thing that might convince ourselves. But it's really a question of do we have believing hearts? Do we have hearts that are willing to believe and follow him? Of course, we need to remember that that's not the same thing as having a gullible heart. Um, A gullible heart will just believe anything, but a believing heart will analyse the truth and then be willing to be changed by the truth. Because it's easy for us to keep asking questions about Jesus or about God. It's easy to keep wondering, keep debating But sooner or later, all of that kind of searching, if we're not careful, can just become a rationalisation. It ceases to be a way of exploring the truth, coming to understand the truth, and just can become an exercise of um, endless scepticism, a meaningless exercise that's really ultimately about defensiveness and about delay, rather than as as, as a way of avoiding making a decision or making a commitment Jesus. Because we need to be wary, you know, this idea of doubt and scepticism is very fashionable these days and it can have the appearance of wisdom. It can seem rational, cautious, humble and of course there's a place for those things. But all too often it can easily become about the journey rather than the destination. All about the arguments and about the discussion rather than about the conclusion or making a decision. But instead, we should be asking questions that are about finding answers, not staying in ignorance. We want to find knowledge, not just have a debate. After all, that's the difference between a journey that's going somewhere or just an aimless stroll. Because, as God said, if we, seek, if we seek him, he says we will find him if we follow him with all, if we seek him with all of our heart. We can't be half-hearted. We need to seek him with all our heart. And that's what the Jewish leaders failed to do. They failed to seek God with all of their heart. Whereas those that had responded, those that had responded to John, those that were responding to Jesus, They were seeking him with all of their heart. Because eventually we all need to make 
that decision. And not just once, but every day we need to make that decision. Will we believe Jesus? Will we follow Jesus? Um, Because just like with those Jewish teachers, even no response, even no answer um, is a decision. There's no avoiding the issue. So I guess that's my encouragement to us all today, is that a reminder that following Jesus takes commitment. It takes a commitment to finding the truth, but it also takes a commitment to following the truth. So let's look into ourselves. What does hold us back from fully believing and following Jesus? And let's also challenge others. What holds them back? Because otherwise we face the same trouble that the Jewish leaders had and we may indeed miss God's entire purpose for us as they did. So that's my encouragement for us all today, to look into ourselves and question what is holding us back from following and believing in Jesus.